Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Hour. I'm Megan Francis here, as always, with Sarah Powers. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. I feel like I'm a guest. You are. Well, you're sort of the pre-guest guest yeah. because today this is one of our Voices episodes, and today I am interviewing Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure. Um, and it's kind of funny because Sarah is a Jess Leahy super fan, but I claimed this interview. I know. Sarah doesn't get to do it. This is so funny, but we've talked about how it actually worked out perfectly. So you guys know we we take turns with our interviews, and you know we've always got a list of people we want to talk to or topics we want to cover. Um, but when the Colin college admissions scandal kind of hit a few weeks ago um, that kind of gave us renewed interest to have somebody on who could talk about this delicate balance of parent involvement. It's always more complicated than we think it is. And, and this story like kind of brought the extremes to light. Wouldn't you say Megan? Yeah, it did. And I actually um, interviewed Amy Joyce from the Washington post. She's the unparenting editor. And we just did like a quickie bonus episode where I just really quickly interviewed her about kind of that story and what was going on at the college level. Um, But we also thought it would be great to talk to Jess because she's a teacher Mm -hmm. and she writes, you know, in depth about not only like the result when you get to the high school and college level and beyond where kids who've been kind of like overparented in a way can't deal with life, but she talks about kind of how we start, like where, how, how is this thing, has this attitude creeping in? Yes. To, you know, parenting toddlers and, and even sometimes before that. So it's a great conversation and we are really excited um, to have her on the show today. Sarah, we both know this time of year can be crazy. So this is a great time to get ahead with no prep, no mess meals from our sponsor factor. I love how these meals are ready to eat and delivered right to your door. I mean, you can't beat that convenience, but most importantly, they're seriously delicious. Yeah, Megan, I agree. Our whole family was impressed with the quality and flavor of Factor Meals we tried. And it turned out to be a great option for my teenagers when they got home late from a theater practice or came home from school super hungry. There's zero prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. 
Factor meals just need to be heated for about two minutes and they're ready to go. Yeah. And for any listeners with wellness goals this month, Factor has six menu preferences to support your lifestyle, whether you're trying to boost your protein, avoiding meat, or simply focusing on well-balanced meals. And you can pause or reschedule deliveries to fit your lifestyle. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. Head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour50 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, Megan, like many of our listeners, I'm sure I've been doing some spring cleaning in my closet lately, and it always feels so good to get rid of clothes I'm not wearing, things that don't fit or that aren't my style anymore. But you know what I realized? All of my Vionic shoes are always in the keep pile. They just tick all the boxes. They're cute, comfy, high quality. They last forever. And I love growing my Vionic collection, especially with the latest styles from their Vionic Vitals collection. The Vionic Vitals collection offers daily wear styles designed for elegance, comfort, and versatility. We both love the Uptown Loafer, which collapses flat, so it's perfect for travel. The Chardonnay Heeled Sandal, which I know you love, Sarah. The Walk 23 Classic Sneaker, which our team member Katie gets compliments on all the time. And the Willa Slip-On Flat, one of my favorites, which comes in 12 colors for any outfit. Yeah, I need to uh, get the Willa Slip-On Flat. That's next on my list. Well, listeners, if you're ready to try the shoes we're always raving about, use code themomhour 15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at bionicshoes.com when you log into your account. That's one-time use only. Bionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. Um, so Megan, as jealous as I am, I guess we're going to, no, it's actually, it's actually way better. (laughs) It's way better that you're interviewing Jess because I do, I have followed her work so closely and read her book and heard her speak and all of that, which sometimes actually as an interviewer, you know, is not, is not helpful. It's not ideal. Right. I'm super excited to listen to your conversation and I know our listeners are really going to enjoy it. Me too. Now get out of (laughs) here. Hi Jess. It is so great to have you on the show. I am just so excited to talk to you and can't believe that we haven't done this already. (laughs) Right. Okay. So you know that Sarah is like your biggest evangelist. And so we were talking about how almost embarrassing it is that we've talked about your book as much as we have, but not actually had you on. And then the fact that I get to interview you and Sarah doesn't just kind of felt funny. Like I rubbed it in her face a little bit, but. Oh, good. That's excellent. (laughs) Don't you love causing conflict between co-hosts? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So. You know, we all saw this kind of explosion. I know people have been talking about overparenting, um, hyperparenting, helicopter parenting. Now there's this yeah. new there's this new phrase. What is it? Snowplow. Snowplow parenting. Well, but there's always been like Blackhawk parenting. So, you know, there's a million different ones depending on where you are. Everybody so, yeah, likes but right to- now. It's snowplow. And tiger mom. I remember that being one too. So everybody likes to yeah. have like these easy phrases. And we've talked about this. I feel like for. I feel like when my son, who's 21, my oldest was born, it was just starting to kind of become like a thing in the collective consciousness. Yeah. yeah. But it's easy to talk about it as a concept. And then it's another thing entirely to have something like last month happened where you have a, an indictment where people are like, where there's proof. I mean, I think it was like, it was (laughs) shocking, but not surprising. So let's start there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyone who was in the, anyone who's ever been in the education world and uh, talking about parenting, especially, you know, I was really lucky and I I secured sort of this spot at the intersection of teaching and parenting. And those of us who are there, like Julie Lithcott-Hames and Lisa Damore and Phyllis Fogel, all of us are like, 
yeah, we've been just waiting for this to happen. This yeah. was not at all surprising. Yeah, that and that's so crazy. I think I think the reason the story really just hit such a nerve is that it crosses every I mean it crosses every um socioeconomic you know division. It crosses uh political divisions. Like everybody can be unified <laughs> in thinking this is crummy, right? So it's just right. interesting. But then we're all participating in some weird right. way in our, in our sometimes on a very micro level and our to whatever our station allows. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're still like part of the system. So I want to really talk about that today where where it starts. It does not start at college. It does not start in high school. <laughs> right. Like you've made this case no. that this starts yeah. very young. Well, there's so many different ways to come at this. And yeah. what's interesting is when you say it sort of crosses every economic level, it overparenting does. Although mm -hmm. I, I have, I would say, you know, overparenting or whatever you want to call it, overparenting is sort of the the term they use in the research, is um, or directive parenting happens very differently. If you're the kind of person who has a feeling of um, that you have the power, that you have the money, that you have the, yeah. the the power really is the word I'm looking for to go out into the world and beat your hand on the desk and say, you know, this is how my child will be treated. That's one socioeconomic level <clears throat> or level of power. And then, you know, for people who may not feel like that's something they're able to do, whether that's people of color, whether that's people in poverty, whether that's people with, you know, language barriers, you know, overparenting or directive parenting tends to happen sort of more in the home. So it does mm. look a little different, but in terms of the outrage for yeah. this issue, and especially in the past few weeks, it dev definitely does cross um, all borders. And what's been interesting is the, you know, especially people of color, it's been fun to watch on Twitter, watching people say, well, okay, yes, but we've known that this <laughs> right. is something that people have done forever. And yeah. so now the question that I've been getting for the past two weeks, especially since I've been on the road a lot, um, talking at schools is, where's the line? So clearly paying half a million dollars and cheating and bribing, that's over the line. Right. We've all agreed to that. Now what? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so at least, you know, the, the thing that's so weird about this is I've been really grateful that this has been a part of the conversation because I was thinking, well, maybe this is the pendulum hitting the far end yeah. and we'll come back in a reasonable direction. But on the other hand, as long as you could say, I haven't spent but half I haven't a million dollars, yes. <laughs> exactly, right. then maybe I'm still okay. And yet at the other hand, you know, we have, you know, the ability to make donations to schools, even if that's, you know, in totally legal, mm -hmm. totally reasonable ways, people have always gamed the system. And that's, do we stop giving to our colleges? Right. You know, whether, you know, all these, there are these very weird and, and, um, difficult to find lines in the sand now yeah. and people are saying well where where what's okay and what's not and and we and all know difficult. i mean we know that people of wealth are going to rub elbows at the country club and that's going to get your kids if you're in that you know in that at that level that's going to get your kids advantages that other kids simply don't have i think what's weird and different about now is that we're we're as normals um kind of expected to try to be like competing on a similar playing field or at least creating some kind of a similar system within our own wherever we're at and there's all this weird competition that I know that's not a brand new thing but I think that we're all mm -hmm. engaging in it in some weird in some way is new of course yeah yeah I, I think well 
the competition aspect of it and the worry about getting judged by other parents mm. and getting judged by anyone who's sort of looking at your kid and saying, wait a second, why is your kid not in all sorts of after school activities? And what yeah. do you mean your kid doesn't play an instrument? And, you know, as, as a parent who has very specifically decided to step back from any of that and um, reject that pressure, although I'm not saying I don't feel it, I'm just right. saying from a, you know, from an abstract perspective, mm-hmm. um, it, it can be really, really tough. You know, the, the most common response I get, especially when I go around to, and talk at schools about, you know, how to foster intrinsic motivation in kids and how to get kids excited about learning. And part of that is by backing off and giving kids more autonomy. And the parents will come up to me in the parking lot afterwards and say, you know, I'm all for this. I want my kid to be more competent. I want my kid to learn how to self-advocate and I want to step back, but I can't be the first one. Yeah. Because if I'm the first one, I'm going to get judged. Yep. Yeah. And, and it does take a certain amount of whether it's deciding I am going to reserve Monday evenings for family time. And that means if there's anything that happens on a Monday evening, we're not doing it or whether, you know, whatever limit you want to put according to your values, it is like, really hard to be the first person to do that. And it starts younger and younger. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about the level or the age even where parents are entering into this sort of unspoken contract, this cultural contract that they're going to parent a certain way and how that plays out. Well, one of the things you have to understand, and it's really important to understand from my perspective as a teacher, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years. So this whole you know, what is it we're doing to our kids in terms of our parenting and how, what I'm really interested in and how is how that affects learning, how that affects, yes, I'm interested obviously in how that affects their ability to self-advocate and they're, they're creating their own voice and having their own destiny and all that kind of stuff. But from a teaching perspective, you know, I was really concerned originally with how it affects learning. And the reality is that from a very, very early age, if you are what's called directive, if you are the kind of parent who tells how tells your child how to do it, or you know, even worse, the let me just do that for you, mm-hmm. or um, you know, even if your kid has a simple task like um, you know, sticking some shapes through the holes in that ball, that Tupperware ball that I yeah. always love with the different yep. shapes. I know in what it. you're talking about. If you tell your children how and when and why and where to do those things, your child is less likely to build up um, a comfort with not a comfort so much, but a tolerance for the feeling of frustration. Mm. So kids of directive parents are less likely to be able to complete tasks that frustrate them when they're separate, especially when they're separated from their parent. So, and this is based on some research by a woman named Wendy Grolnick. So the problem with that is that when those kids arrive at school, when they end up going to school, the most powerful teaching tools I have as a teacher require kids to get a little frustrated or to at least be comfortable enough with that frustration to stick with the task long enough to see it out. Those things, they're called desirable difficulties. I also need kids to be able to hear constructive feedback and Mm. kids who can't hear constructive feedback because it makes them freak out and fall apart. They're also harder to teach. So from my perspective as a parent, all those things, I hate seeing my kid frustrated. I hate seeing my students frustrated. I want to fix it for them. I want to do it for them. I want to just make that frustration in my kid go away. I don't want my, kid, want my kid to feel bad about his abilities or his, you know, his smarts. But every time I do that, I am robbing him of not only the ability to sort of develop um, this 
resilience, grit, fortitude, perseverance, whatever the heck mm-hmm. you want to call it, but a comfort with frustration that will allow him to be a really effective learner in school as well. So it's, you know, it's a real problem and it starts from a very young age. It starts from, you know, when they're still infants. Let's talk, I want to unpack this as, because as a teacher, I think part of it, you know, we do talk about the public parenting thing that makes it hard to make those choices, but also teachers have now been immersed in this culture as well. Do you yeah. ever get pushback from teachers who just say, well, this is the, the bar has been raised. This is just how it is. Or who maybe don't even under, they don't even know that they're so swimming in it, that they're making, that they're either directly or indirectly like implying those same demands on parents. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's cause it's, it's happening on all the levels. It's happening everywhere. Well, what's been really interesting is as we learn more about how learning works and what works really well for learning, as we talk more about things like growth mindset, um, I had a, you know, there was a parent recently, um, a a student told me that her parent was not interested uh, in this whole workshop on how to help your kid have more of a growth mindset, more Mm. of the mindset that like the learning is what's interesting and important. Um, Because the mother said, frankly, you know, this is crap. Grades are what matter. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, this is part of the big picture we're looking at. And, you know, I had to write the book Gift of Failure based on what we have now, which is a system that is completely dominated by asking kids to reach to work towards extrinsic motivators, things mm-hmm. like grades, points, scores, getting paid for their grades, um, you know, getting stuff in exchange for their grades or threats. Um, You know, if you don't keep a B minus or better, you're, you know, grounded, or I'm going to take away your electronics, or I'm going to check on that portal 24 seven to watch your grades to make sure that you're doing well, or I'm going to, you know, track you on your phone. So I know where you are at all times. These things are, I'm not saying we can't use them. I'm just saying they are extrinsic motivators. And what we know about extrinsic motivators, because of 40 years of really solid research on this is that extrinsic motivators actually undermine our kids' motivation to do the thing it is we're trying to get them to do. So, you know, in Give It to Failure, I say, if you want your kid to not want to learn math, pay them for their math grades. It's really, really simple. And I'm not making this stuff up. This is like really (laughs) solid research. And the problem is, is that it's just a little harder to um, get kids to want to do stuff for the sake of the thing itself. And yeah, it's easier to turn to a sticker chart or to pay kids for grades or to do whatever it is to to rely on the on the grades themselves. And, you know, those things are extrinsic motivators are sneaky, too. They seem like they work right out yeah. uh, uh, in the in the short term. They do work in the short term, but they don't work on the over the long term. And in fact, they undermine kids motivation. So, you know, as a teacher, I'm in trouble because grades could matter scores right <laughs> right, right. And for you as a I mean, parent yeah right and as a parent all the things you know from the time my kids were little you know sticker charts and taking away the stuffed animal if they won't do what i told Peeing them on to a do, cheerio that kind of stuff <laughs> right it turns out what's really interesting though is that sticker charts the one exception in terms of sticker charts when they seem to work is for things that have a reward in and of themselves like mm, okay. getting out of a diaper yeah, so interesting. Okay. So being out of a diaper can be the reward that sort of makes it so that a sticker chart for potty training does work. 
Got it. Yeah. Um, there's some weird psychology involved, but uh, but anyway, sticker charts, you know, reading logs. Oh my gosh, reading yes. logs. We need to get rid of those immediately. They suck all of the love out of reading and make kids not want to read in the long term. So please let's stop doing that. Yeah, my my daughter actually. There's a program at our school called Reading Counts. And I, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a, nas- a national program or not. Um, mm-hmm. But it's you know you read a book and you get a certain number of points if you take the test. Right. And she was like super stressing, and I yeah. because she kept starting books that were too hard, and she would realize going in, she's like, I will never get a good grade on this test. Like she was starting to kind of proactively realize that the the book was a bit above her range, so she ditch it. So she was like not completing books because she was so afraid of the points. And I said, well, honey, the name of the program is reading counts. Like what counts is that you're reading. And she looked at me like I was so stupid. She was like, no, right. no, reading well, doesn't think count. About, the points count. <laughs> think exactly. Yeah. Think about the psychology of that. Yeah. When I was little, it was, we would get, um, we could earn pizza hut coupons. Oh yes. For free pizza. Um, <laughs> if we read over the summer. So to a kid, what is the most valuable thing in that trans in that, um, transaction? Is it the pizza or is it the reading? Well, clearly the pizza is the most valuable thing because that's the reward. Right. If it was the reading, we would be giving kids books for eating pizza, but we don't. <laughs> that's and so funny. And it makes no yes. sense. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's so funny. Uh, Plus, I'm sorry, but if you're reading a book you really love and then someone says, okay, you can read this book that you love, but you're going to have to like, you know, keep a log yes. and write down what you found important in the last part you read. And I believe me, I'm all for critical reading and critical mm-hmm. thinking, but reading logs suck the fun out of reading and yeah. the kids are not going to keep reading Um, You know, I teach kids right now who have mostly either dropped out of high school or have given up on high school. And to get those kids to read, I just have to find the sneakiest possible ways to suck them back into the joy of reading. And none of that includes asking them to give me feedback on the last 40 pages they read. You know, that's so funny about that. Something I I kind of recently realized about myself. I was a big time reader when I was a kid. Like I just consumed books like they were air but I was never a great comprehensive reader. My first time through a book, I would kind of skim. And then if I decided mm-hmm. I loved it, I'd go back and read it 17 times. Mm-hmm. And something like that would never fly. <laughs> if, if there was some kind of test where I had to remember some deep, like some kind of obscure detail, because to me, that wasn't the point. The point was the love of language, the love of story, right. blah, blah, blah. I might kind of zone out for a couple of pages, but I'd come back. And what a bummer it would have been if that yeah. in those days had been tampered by like having to have it right, you know, like. Having oh, to, I yeah. apologized to my students. The first couple of years of students I had, I tested them on the weirdest, obscure stuff because I'm like, ooh, I'll really catch them if they weren't reading carefully. Right. Um, that's not the point. The point should be whether it's a book about if it's a book about character development, it should be about the characters or right. the trajectory or the, you know, the growth. Um, yeah, trying to catch them on stupid detail oriented stuff is just not not it's I can't believe I did it. But that's the way I was taught so, right, for the most yeah. part. So I think, you know, I thought that's how I was supposed to do it. Let's talk about the name of your book, The Gift of Failure. Um, failure, it's an F word, but I it's think it's, it's like the most taboo. Nobody yeah. ever wants to fail. Like failing is the worst thing that can happen. Right. And yet I think your premise is that if we don't learn how to fail early and often, we're going to fail hard later. Or if we just keep getting saved from failure, maybe these failures are going to come out in ways that are way more damaging to us and our psyche. So talk about like, was that a very specific choice to go with that that title? Well, you know, the fact that failures in the title, I mean, I guess 
it, it seems like I'm saying, yay, fail early and often. But actually, what I really want is for kids to have this sort of positive, adaptive response mm. to failure. There's a great book called Adapt by Tim Harford. He's a business guy, an economics guy. And I love that book because it talks about, you know, big, huge failures in uh, there's one about a play and the play just was a total failure. But the only way that they could make it what was eventually a huge success was to really rip it apart and decide what was working and what wasn't and look whole cloth at the whole thing and figure out, okay, we can't, you know, we can't ignore that. We can't blame it on someone else. We can't ignore these things that have gone wrong. How do we go forward in a way that will allow us to do better next time. And that's what I want for my students. And unfortunately, what I've begun to, what I was seeing more and more was either completely giving up the minute they got anything wrong or assuming that they just couldn't do it. And they just, there was no way they could do it because they didn't get it right the first time they tried. And, you know, increasingly what we're seeing is, you know, kids going off to college after having um, never really had to deal with setbacks and then, losing it big time mm, once they mm-hmm. got to college. And, you know, if you look at, if you read, I'm a huge fan of a friend of mine, Julie Lithcott Hames, wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult. And in that book, um, you know, I think my book and her book are really nice dovetails because she's coming at it from the college end and saying, look, here's what can happen if you overly direct or overparent your kid into total inability to know who they are, what they want, or how to operate in the world. And so it's, that's what I was hearing as my students got older and older is that they still felt helpless. And, Mm. um, that, that helplessness is learned. It's learned. Helplessness is a thing and we teach it to them. We teach them to be helpless. And that's, I, I just feel so bad that that's what we have done. And so that's sort of why I went about trying to figure out a way to fix it. Love that. Um, so let's talk about, you know, specifics here because Mm -hmm. Every now and then a, an article will go viral or mm-hmm. something and it will have a title like stop bringing your kids lunch to school because they forgot <laughs> it or whatever, you know, whatever right, the title right. is. And right. I think it creates this kind of false idea that there's just like a line we can draw. And if we just don't do these things right. and we do right. those things, that everything's right. going to be cool and we're going to be doing it right. And I can think of times that I have delivered a, a forgotten jacket mm-hmm. or a lunch to school and times that I haven't. And Right. It's not always based on some kind of arbitrary rule. It's it's very much like the context and the need and mm-hmm. all of those things. And I'm wondering, as a mom and a teacher, like, how do you make those decisions in the moment? Or as a teacher, how do you receive those things? Like, when you see that playing out, a kid in your class is upset or disappointed. They thought their mom was going to bail them out and she didn't or whatever it is. Like, what's your perspective on both sides? So as a teacher... Um, Every time a kid doesn't get bailed out, it's a really amazing opportunity, especially in middle school where, you know, essentially my job was to walk around and see kids screw up all day long every day (laughs) and find the right moment to have that be a learning opportunity. And so, you know, if I go up to a kid and I say, okay, sweetie, you've forgotten, you know, all of your homework for like three straight days. How are we going to do, how are you going to do things differently tomorrow? How can I support you in coming up with a way that maybe you'll remember your stuff or let's look at your plan book and see how to do it differently. And then if the parent runs into the room at that moment with the forgotten homework, that learning opportunity is lost. So from my perspective as a teacher, is it annoying when a kid forgets their homework every single day for weeks on end? Yes. Is it also an opportunity for me to help them become better over time? Absolutely. But from the perspective of a parent, 
there are two things I do. And this is sort of like, let's forget about whether or not to take the lunch. Let's forget about whether or not to take the cleats. Let's just say overall two things. Number one, start thinking more long-term and less emergency-based short-term mm. sort of stuff. So start thinking about instead of, is it important that I take this homework assignment today that the kid left on the coffee table? Or do I want my kid in a month, in six months or in a year to be the kind of kid who won't forget the homework assignment on the coffee table? Do I want to take my kid's cleats today? Or do I want to help my kid come up with a system or you know support my kid in coming up with a strategy so that they will remember the cleats themselves next mm. time? And I have to think that way all the time because there are all these things I want to do to, you know, make me feel good about my parenting, to make my kid love me more, mm. to make my kids' teachers think I'm super duper on the ball. But in the end, I have to think, do I want to do this now or do I want my kid to be the kind of person who will be able to do it themselves next time? So that's number one. And number two, I try really hard to focus on the process of learning, becoming, maturing, becoming better, whatever that thing is, rather than the end product. So for me, is it that, uh, you know, when my kid comes home with a low grade on something, immediately my instinct is to go all parent ninja teacher mode and like really crank down on this kid and micromanage every aspect of how we're going to do better next time. Because frankly, this is totally humiliating for me as a parent. How, what must the teachers think of me? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. But instead, you know, I have to think really hard about how am I going to help him do better next time? So asking questions like, hmm, interesting grade. Well, what did you do to get that grade? How did you study? Um, did you get enough sleep the night before? You say your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What did you do that your friend didn't do? So that when we tell them what I care about is the learning, they will believe us because right now they do not believe us. <laughs> right. um, you know, when I, yeah. I, I talk to hundreds of thousands of kids over the past couple of years, I have talked to hundreds of thousands of kids and I, 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 I give them all, every single kid, my email address. And I say, what do you want me to tell your parents before they come tonight to my evening event? And they email me all kinds of stuff. But some of the biggest things they say are about actually caring about whether or not they learn, caring about who they are, caring about what's valuable to them, as opposed to some end product, whether that's a grade, a point, a score, you know, that kind of thing. So think long-term rather than short-term. Try to think more about the process um, involved in being better next time, as opposed to, you know, trying to micromanage every aspect and uh, of this grade that you have right in front of you. Yeah, that's really good advice. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine who's a therapist about um, just an issue I'm having with one of my kids. And his advice is really interesting. And it made me think about the way we tend to like when something doesn't go right, we go all in. And he yeah. was saying, well, it's like medication, like you titrate. So you. Right. You start with the lowest oh, possible dose. Oh, that's great. Dose. I, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And, and you start with like the lowest possible dose of parent involvement. So maybe it's like whatever it is, maybe it's you put the lunch in a more obvious place and hope that they yeah. pick up or whatever it is. You know, yeah. we don't always have to rush right to full, like full fire alarm parenting. But well, I, I think it was, we were just laughing about this in our house because uh, when my one of my sons was failing something at one point, I had like this little journal and I was logging like what we were doing every day to sort of remediate and like hear the skills, he blah, 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 blah. When what really needed to happen was he just needed to spend some time after school with his teacher one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. And then like 
it just sort of naturally worked itself out once we talked to the teacher and said, what do you think would work really well? And we sort of had a little powwow about it. It was, you know, yeah, I tend to, especially as a teacher, I tend to be like, okay, I am going to fix this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And my kids are old enough now. They're 15 and 20. You know, I can't fix stuff for the 20 year old and the 15 year old at this point really has to learn how to fix this stuff for himself because I don't have a lot of time left with him to support him. So, you know, being in the background and and thinking about the long term with him is really, really important. We are welcoming back Ritual as a sponsor today. Megan, we both try to make healthy choices, but you know, sometimes it's tricky to sort through fact and fiction when it comes to supplements and vitamins to figure out just what they're doing for us. That's why I'm glad Ritual keeps studying their products and sharing the results, especially as it relates to women, since women are the focus of all Ritual's products, including the Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin. And the results are super reassuring. Just as an example, Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin, and it was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin is made with high-quality and traceable key nutrients in clean, bioavailable forms with nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Plus, they are leading the industry when it comes to sustainability. They use lower carbon packaging and prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients. That kind of thoughtfulness really matters to me. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash the mom hour. Start Ritual or add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash the mom hour for 25% off. Megan, one thing I love about living in the time that we do is the way technology is transforming so many areas of our lives, not just to make things faster, but also to expand access to more people. And I'm not just talking about meal delivery or transportation, but even like the way our kids learn music. Yeah, Sarah, children's music education does not always have to be left up to in-person classroom teachers or private instructors like it was when we were growing up. Our sponsor, Carnegie Hall Kids, is putting great online resources right at our kids' fingertips. Yeah, we've shared about Carnegie Hall Kids in the past, and they're really great educational quizzes, games, and videos for kids and families. But I'm really excited to tell everybody about their new Sites You Can Hear quiz. This is really cool. It's an online quiz you can do with your kids or they can do on their own, and it plays a piece of music, and then you guess what visual image or scene it sounds like. Almost like one of those inkblot tests, but for your ears. Okay, I really want to take that quiz. And a really cool thing is everything on the Carnegie Hall Kids website is totally free. Listeners, start the musical journey early and go to kids.carnegiehall.org to check out fun, child-friendly games and quizzes free. Okay, so Jess, here's here's one of the, the hardest parts I think about this whole thing. It's other people, right? Like you said it before, <laughs> right? Well, other people are always the hard part, but Right. We talked about the pressure of public parenting. We've talked about how hard it is to be the first one. Um, Let's also talk about teachers a little bit, because like we kind of touched on, teachers have also been awash in this, you know, the soup, this stress Mm -hmm. soup. And they're different as well. And Sarah and I just had a conversation not too long ago where we talked about the fact that like you can't change your parent, like especially when you get into middle school you can't change your parenting style for every teacher. Like you just can't do that. So like at some point you have to get really clear about what your values are and then you have to stick to them. Even if that means your child might see six people in the day and three of them might think you suck. 
It's apparent, like, or you might get that impression. So right. how do you feel like, like what ways have you seen teachers who maybe aren't where you are, don't have the mindset that you do? Do you think there's an effective way to still kind of put, like draw that line in the sand, put that flag in the ground, like whatever it is and create your family culture the way you want it to without, you know, offending or right. making, creating conflict between your child and the teacher or whatever it's going to be. So what, you know, when I started doing the research on this stuff and sort of figuring out um, what, what was going to help my kid be a better learner over the long run, as opposed to sort of, you know, me jumping in and, and fixing stuff. One of the first things we started doing was I sent a note to all, well, actually I emailed all of my kids' teachers and said, number one, we will not be using the portal at all as a parent um, unless something changes and we yeah. suddenly have to. But that's always been open to change, but we've never changed it. Um, I've never used the portal as a as a parent. Um, and I also will not be signing. Uh, this is when my younger son was, um, I don't know, in like third grade. And he used to get like this notebook that would come home every day. And I had to sign off saying he had done his best job on his homework, you know, to the best of his ability, which was ridiculous. I can't know if he's done it to the best of his ability. So <laughs> you're not inside he, his head, right? He was given the ability to sign that. So I just said, look, what's really important to me is that my kids develop um, some competence. I give them some autonomy and that we continue to communicate and they feel like they can talk to me. So to that end, I will not be micromanaging their school, which means you know, like I said, I won't be checking in on the portal or whatever constantly. And so here's the best way to reach me if things start to circle the drain. So that means I'm not, you know, up day to day on what's going on with my kids at school. But if something does start to go downhill, the teacher knows that I will be there to support my kid and to work with the teacher. Yeah. That The nice thing about that from my perspective as a teacher is that if a parent comes to me and says, look, I want my kid to be more competent. I want to give my kid more autonomy. So can you hold my kid to consequences so that he or she can learn from those things? I want to just give that parent a big hug and say, oh my gosh, you trust me to do my, my job? Yeah. It's it's a real statement of trust that, that I appreciate as a teacher. Um, does it mean that I may have to pick up the phone every once in a while and make a phone call and that's irritating? Sure. Yeah. yeah. But it also means that I'm trusted, which is huge. So letting the teachers know and letting the kid know what the baseline expectations are is um, the first most important thing you can do when it comes to stepping back a little bit. I love that. And I think for so many of us, um, it's so hard to do that. Like I still have a weird thing where I have a hard time calling teachers by their first names, which is unfortunate <laughs> because I'm friends with a lot of teachers. So that gets weird, yeah. but like, it's, it's this authority thing that never goes away. Like it doesn't, mm -hmm. you become a parent, it still doesn't go away. And so we do, we give too much power in our lives to people who are our partners, right? Like we should be looking at it like we're doing a job together, but instead we're like, oof, if we don't do this right, we get an F in parenting from this teacher person. Well, yeah. but the research is really, really clear that when the homeschool relationship is solid, when there's a real feeling of teamwork, that uh, kids do better. Yeah. And think, sometimes I make the analogy for parents, um, and I've written about this. I, I had this column in the New York Times for three years called the Parent-Teacher Conference, where it was fun. I got to address all this stuff, sort of explaining it for both sides. And one of the things that was really clear was, think of it as if, pretend like you're going through a divorce and you want your kid to still have a good relationship with your ex-spouse. It's mm. important. Every kid needs, you know, as good a possible relationship with their, with their parents. 
So you got to kind of check yourself when you want to really bash daddy for being a jerk because the kid loves their daddy and their kid loves their teacher often. So it can be really emotionally confusing when you bash their teacher to the kid because whether or not the kid loves their teacher, there's often this feeling of loyalty that happens. Like I would obviously never bash a parent to a kid. I just would never do that because that's asking, uh, that's emotionally just would be incredibly unsettling for a kid. And, And, you know, I would ask parents to at least in front of the kid to give the teacher some level of doubt and and make it as likely as possible that your child can put some trust in their teacher. Um, that's sort of a really important first step um, is to at least try to make that be a good relationship. And and the nice thing about that column is I was able to do a couple of, even in, in Gift of Failure, actually, there's some guidelines in there. Like if you've got what you think is a broken relationship with your kid's teacher, here are some ways you might be able to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, that. And yeah, mediate. And I, I think that, you know, there's that old saying that it, like parent, let's make a deal here. Parents, we won't believe what is it? Half the things that your kids say about you as long as you don't <laughs> I say I, I say I won't believe everything my, your kid says happens at home if you don't believe every single thing that right. your kid says happens at school. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really you should hear some of the stuff we hear. Oh, my gosh. And, and my kids will come home and they'll say things that I'm like, that is not that can't be true. Like whatever it. <laughs> You know, that's your perspective as one of 26 or 28 kids. And here you are in this room and you're just making assumptions. And it's it's that's something that I think like it just takes it takes experience. I think when I had like my very first preschooler, I would be like, oh, everything he said, I would. And then I would get all bent out of shape about stuff. And then after a while, you kind of start to get the perspective like, oh, this is just another adult. There's another parent probably doing their job and. They're taking like they, my kid is in their care for X number of hours mm-hmm. a day. Um, and my kid is like not a very reliable narrator at all times. Well, and also so. the, the, the other thing that's been interesting for me as a teacher, especially so kids have this really most kids and especially at certain levels of development have this really heightened sense of justice. They feel mm-hmm. like, you know, things are very black and white at certain levels of development. And with the students I have now things are very black and white. So the other day, actually, uh, I interrupted a kid and he was livid with me and I could not figure out why he was so mad. And finally, he told me it was because I had interrupted him and I apologized to him. And he got this shock look on his face like, what? What? Admitting (laughs) you did something wrong. And then about an hour later, um, he interrupted me. And all the other kids were like, aren't you going to get mad and throw that back in his face? And I was like, no, I'm I'm trying to teach him, you know, from my perspective, I was trying to teach him, you know, model for him the behavior I wanted to see. And I think that modeling, both from a teacher perspective and as a parent perspective, is underestimated. And so what's so interesting about modeling as a parent is that you can model the things you really want to see in your kid, which is you know, being focused on the learning and not on the end result, being interested in um, putting yourself out on the line and trying things that scare you a little bit. You know, we're Mm. asking kids to take challenges in school because that's how their brains grow the best. And yet we don't tend to take a lot of challenges in front of them or talk about them with our kids and talk to our kids when we screw up those challenges and say, you know, hey, I made this big mistake at work today. How would you handle that? You know, this... This we're expecting them to be intellectually brave, expecting them to put themselves out on the line and yet never showing them that we do that as well. And I think that's 
as a teacher and as a parent, I think those are that's one of the most most important jobs is to model the bravery I want to see in my own kids. I love that. Um, Jess, you have been teaching now for, you said 20 years? 20 years, yeah. So 10, I would say fully 10 of those years, there was really no social media. And in the <laughs> last maybe eight, it's become really just very, like very front and center in people's lives. Yeah. Has that changed? Has that changed teaching for you? Like, ha- have you seen a noticeable difference? Well, it's, I mean, there's for good and bad. I mean, yeah. I think, um, from the perspective of me as a teacher and, you know, cell phones at school, mainly because not because I hate them or because I think they should be banned, but because I'm trying to figure out how to use technology in a way that makes sense. Um, you know, schools that completely ban phones, uh, I don't think make any sense. And schools that, uh, you know, where kids can use them every second of the day don't, don't make any sense. So from that perspective, that's been a, that's an ongoing challenge. And I'm really curious to see how we handle that. Plus, technology sort of for the sake of technology in schools, mm. it's been handled really badly. On the other hand, though, especially as a teacher in a rural state, um, technology and things like social media, like Twitter, has been one of the best things that's happened to my teaching. Yeah. Um, as a profession, teachers are one of the largest users of Twitter. So um, for, I follow nearly, I follow like 30 something thousand teachers on Twitter and I learn new stuff all the time. It's an incredible tool. So for better or for worse, yes, technology really has changed the way I teach. It's also when, you know, I was in a school recently and I was talking about the problems with the portal and how sometimes parents can find out grades before their kids find out their grades. And that can be a problem. And this kid laughed and he um, he came up to me at the end of the talk and he showed me his phone and there was a big all shouty caps text message from his mom who had just discovered a grade that the kid didn't even know about because he'd been in an assembly with me, not on the portal. And the, the mom's just about to pick the kid up. The funniest part of this is that that grade was a mistake. Yeah. So the mom, the kid has not have had and will not have an opportunity to talk to his teacher before his mom shows up that afternoon to pick him up. And she's already pissed. Like that shouty cap text is going to be like shouty cap mom in about 15 minutes. So let's just take a breath collectively (laughs) and say that just because we can check the portal 24 seven, just because we can track our children and know where they are. I had a, a kid came up to me recently and said, that his parents track him so closely on his phone that when he takes a route that they wouldn't take to get to a certain place, they talk to him about it. So, and I talked to a girl just recently who had a baby monitor in her room until she was a sophomore in high school. (laughs) Okay. A sophomore (laughs) in high school had a baby. (laughs) I know. And she was perfectly, there was no illness, no... Just a regular old teenager. Yeah. And I do, you know, I do little things like um, ask parents to remember what it was like when they were in high school and they had a crush on someone and that someone called on the telephone. I said, what would be the worst possible thing your parents could have done? And most people will agree it would be um, picking up that other line, line you know, on the, on the, and listening. And if you think about how kids use texting, Kids don't use the phone anymore. So texting is really their phone conversation. And so if you're reading all of your kids' texts or reading all of your kids' emails, just think for a second about the possible, I don't know, possible consequences of like that. Like, for example, when I talked to some kids recently and one girl had gotten shut out of this big text uh, circle that 
she had been a part of. And we come to find out that her friends had dumped her out of the text circle because they all know that her mom reads her text oh. and they didn't want that kid's mom reading their text. So they, yeah. they dumped her without even telling her why. And, you know, that this is an unforeseen consequence of just poking around in our kids' stuff that, you know, we may not think about. Well, and, and we your, you know, your 13 year old might say a swear word that he would never say around you in a text. And, when you see those things in black and white, it's very shocking. And like, mm -hmm. what? My sweet little whatever. Yeah. But then when you really think about it, we all experimented with right. language, whatever. It just wasn't in a place where our parents could scroll back later and take a screenshot and send it to dad. I mean, it, like, yeah. it was a very different time. And like, we got to make mistakes and they, yeah. didn't, they didn't end up defining us. They didn't end up creating... And I was when that's you were talking the thing about that, oh, that's the the kids that's the thing kids say a lot is I'm not allowed to make any mistakes because yeah. I get I, they'll see everything and and Lonnie Coombs this woman who's a prosecutor has this fantastic book called um, You're Perfect and Other Lies Our Parents Tell Us or that's something funny. like that and in that book she talks about um, the fact that you can never unsee. Um, if you go through your kid's room or you go through your kid's <laughs> texts or whatever you're going to see things that you can never unsee yes and. Sometimes our kids need to have the room to screw up. And um, Michael Thompson, who wrote Homesick and Happy and a bunch of other stuff about boys, says that when he goes and talks to parents, he'll have them think of a moment where they really accomplished something amazing, where they really felt proud of themselves when they were yeah. younger. And then he asks them to raise their hand if their parents were there when that happened. And very rarely... Are the parents there? Because yeah. the moments when we're the most proud of ourselves for problem solving, we're proud because we figured it out on our own. So yes. if we don't give kids the freedom and the room and the privacy to let that happen on its own, they will create it because there's studies that show that kids who are more heavily controlled lie to their parents mm -hmm. far more than kids who have some space for themselves. And they tell me that all the time. They're like, you know, if, if my parents aren't going to give me room to just have something for myself. I'm, I'm just going to have, I'm to a teenager. I'll find that. it. I'll create right, it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. I was just, when you were talking about the root thing, I was thinking about two times that stuck out of me when I just was an early driver. The first time I got desperately lost. I, I've never, like, I don't really like to take predetermined routes. So mm -hmm. I end up kind of just, you know, just experimenting a little bit. I got really, really lost and I figured it out for myself and got home. And I remember how proud I remember yeah. this was, you know, now 30 or 26 years ago, mm -hmm. I remember how proud of myself, of myself I was. The second mm -hmm. time I got desperately lost, could not figure it out. Eventually I pulled over at a post office. I'll never forget this. I somehow managed to find a post office. I like, well, they'll have a, they'll have a phone. I went inside and called my dad and he kind of told me with his words, he didn't come find me. He's mm -hmm. like, oh, I know where you are. You're going to take a left out of there. You're going to go. And then I, and I also figured it out. I didn't need to have anyone tracking me. I didn't need yeah. to have constant communication. Like when it really came down to it, I was still able to problem solve my way out of it. Even with some help, it was like, like that smallest, like the titrate, like the smallest amount mm -hmm. of necessarily help. And yeah, I do feel like kids are being robbed of those kinds of experiences yeah. now. And it's too bad. It's like, we're all kind of participating with or without our knowledge sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. My older kid actually had something go wrong this past year and he didn't tell me about it until about a week later. And the reason he didn't tell me about it, tell me uh, until a week later, is that he knew that we would really want to help. He really wanted to figure it out for himself. And it was a big deal thing. Like it was it, it was at the time it's felt a little life and deathish. And, you know, he was so 
proud of himself when he explained how he problem solved that situation. And, you know, I couldn't have been more proud of him um, if I'd known about it when it happened. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Well, Jess, this has been a great conversation. Tell everyone where they can find you. The book is The Gift of Failure, um, but you're also, you have a podcast, hashtag I'm writing. Talk about a little bit about where people can find your work. You can find everything, obviously, at jessicalahey.com, um, including my speaking calendar. I, I've cut back a little because the next book is due. <laughs> it's due this summer. Um, it's a book on preventing addiction in children. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I teach kids who are drug and alcohol addicted, and I'm a, a recovering alcoholic myself. So I'm, you know, from the perspective of a teacher and a parent writing about how to prevent addiction in kids. Um, but I am out on the road a lot. And so if you go to my event calendar there, you can find me and come on out and see me where I'm, wherever it is I'm speaking. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And um, I look forward to seeing, you know, how this, this all progresses. I do hope that, like you said, yeah. we hit the end of the pendulum and maybe we'll swing I hope so. back a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I'm optimistic based on talking to parents and people. Re- it feels like people are saying, you know, this, I'm starting to feel Enough. a little uncomfortable about this. How yep. do I do better? Yep. I yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Um, you have a great day. You too. Hey guys, I just wanted to share that after that conversation with Jess, I decided yesterday to deal with something with Clara in a way that I maybe wouldn't have if I hadn't had that conversation. Um, I have a very messy bookshelf. Basically, when we moved into this house a year ago, I just threw a bunch of books on a bookshelf and didn't really do anything with them. And it was an eyesore. And I would pass it every day and think, ugh, like, when am I going to have time to organize this bookshelf? And then I thought, well, this is dumb. I can have a kid do that. Clara loves organization. She loves visually, like, visually pleasing things. And I thought she would really enjoy doing it. But I found that when I assigned her this task, like, it was a very big task. It was like taking a bunch of dusty books off a bookshelf, dusting the bookshelf, And then figuring out how to rearrange the books in a way that made sense back onto the bookshelf. And she probably came to me 15 times while she was trying to figure out how to do it. And I just, you know, I I really had this urge to jump in and help her and save her. But I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to empower her. So I said, Clara, you know, I think you've got this. This is a job that you can do. You have a couple options. You can organize them if you want to buy color if that's fun for you you can stack the books um on their sides or you can stand them up the correct way that most people do you can arrange them biggest to smallest you can arrange them by author you can arrange them by genre you cannot arrange them at all as long as it ends up better than it was i am totally happy and she did start doing the color and she i've done bookshelves by color so i i recognize it as a huge job it takes a lot of time and then she decided that wasn't going to work So she eventually decided to go biggest to smallest because I think for her making it totally random was not going to work for her um, aesthetically. But she did end up doing the job and it took her probably two hours. Some of that was her wandering away and coming back. Some of that was her sitting reading. Some of that was her thinking. Some of that was her stressing. Like she really stressed about it. But in the end, she was so proud of how it looked. And now every time I see that bookshelf out in our hallway between my bedroom and hers, I'm just really proud of her. And I'm Happy that I refrained from jumping in. I could have done the job in probably 20 minutes myself. It took her a lot longer and it was actually more work on my part. But now I just feel like this is a little feather in her cap and it's something that she's now able to look at and say, I did that. So I just wanted to share that because I felt like it was so relevant to this conversation. So glad you guys stuck around to listen to the whole thing. Um, Jess is awesome and I hope you'll check out her book and her website and her podcast as well. Thanks guys. We'll see you soon. 
Guess what, Megan? Over 10,000 teens are already using our sponsor, Erica, to help them unplug. That is amazing. Erica, that's Erica with a K, is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug whenever they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. It's so cool how this works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Yeah, you know, teens really get that social media comes with risks, including addiction. And Erica helps them build healthy habits and self-regulation that will benefit them their whole lives. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Hey everyone, Sarah here. Megan and I would absolutely love it if you hit pause right now, right where you're listening and left the mom hour a rating and review. If our show has helped you feel a little more confident as a mom or a little less alone, that's one of the absolute biggest ways you can thank us. And it really takes about 30 seconds. If you're listening in Apple podcasts, just navigate to the mom hours show listing. So not the episode you're listening to right now, but the kind of landing area for our show as a whole, and then scroll down to leave a rating or review. Thank you so much.